Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. banks are broke. And why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians to prison, it will continue. It's May 13th, 2021. That's right. And today we're talking the Fed is playing with fire. You know, I wanted to release a thriller rundown today. I really did. And then I was like, you know what? I want to talk coin talk. I really did. And then when it really came down to it, I said, you know, what is it that is the most important news of the week? And No, it's not the Elon Musk FUD that's out there. No, it's not the Ethereum, (laughs) you know, NFT stuff that's out there. No, it's the Stanley Drunken Miller comments that he made on Tuesday. And you probably are not even aware of this because it was glossed over. And that's typical because something like this is glossed over because this is something that the average media conglomerates don't want people to know about. This is where (laughs) people like myself, people that are astute with monetary policy, people that understand how all that really works, people that are paying attention, even the crypto media, I feel like they barely covered it, barely, you know, really dived into it. Hardly. There's a lot to talk about here. You know, I spent the past 36 hours really trying to understand, like, where Stanley's coming from. Right? If you don't know, Stanley Drunkenmiller, who is the chairman and CEO of Duquesne Family Office, said the Fed's insistence on holding interest rates down and buying trillions in bonds... Even though markets are thriving and the economy is booming, it's a long-term risk. He went on CNBC and said this. He talked for 10 minutes. This is big news, ladies and gentlemen. This is the biggest news of the month. 
you're not going to find anything more, you know, shocking than this. And I say shocking because when I when I found out that he said this yesterday, like I was just I looked at my phone and I was just like, holy crap. He just opened up a can of worms. Ultimately, what he says is that the dollar is going to lose its reserve currency status. That, that's what he says here. And he says it in public. On CNBC, a billionaire investor says this. The dollar is going to lose its reserve currency status. Yeah, you can't just say these things. <laughs> it's, it's one thing for me to say it. <laughs> People will just think I'm crazy. It's one thing for Bitcoiners to say it. People will just think, we're crazy. It's one thing for, you know, even millionaires to say it. They'll just think they're crazy. But for a, a billionaire investor with elite status like him, who, who holds a lot of uh, investor money, for him to say it? Yeah, people are going to pay attention. People are going to perk up. But that's not even to mention... The Wall Street Journal opinion piece that he wrote on May 10th, where he went in depth talking about COVID, talking about the American, American economy, talking about the Fed's independence and how they're supposed to counterbalance, but they're doing the complete opposite. The stuff that we've been talking about, it's almost like he's pulling <laughs> all the same information that we're gathering so I'm telling you, it, it, it almost feels like we're all drinking the same Kool-Aid here. So it's it's kind of weird, kind of weird. It's one thing for Carr to say, you know, the dollar is going to lose the, re the reserve currency status. It's one thing for me to say it. I could just be a crazy person, right? It's, it's one thing for Bitcoiners to say it. Crazy. They're crazy, I tell you. They're crazy. They've been orange-pilled. But for somebody like Stanley Drunkenmiller to say it, well, that's just nuts. Take a listen to what he says.
first, Stan Druckenmiller, CEO of Duquesne Family Office. Stan just uh, wrote a new op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. In his words, the Fed playing with fire, clinging to an emergency policy after the emergency has passed. Uh, Chairman Powell courting asset bubbles and, and stand in the past. You have pointed out that the Fed has stayed a little bit too long, I think, after the financial crisis with emergency accommodation. But you seem to have taken your criticism up to a new level to the point of if you combine fiscal policy that we're seeing with the monetary policy, it's the, the scariest combination in the post-World War II period, in your view? Certainly the most radical policy by a long shot that I've ever seen relative to the economic circumstances. Let's not forget that Ben Bernanke at the peak was doing $85 billion a month. Um, we are now back to normal normalization on GDP. We're above trend on retail sales. Um, funny, last year at the Economics Club, around this time, I said that a V recovery was a fantasy. I couldn't have been more wrong, but this is all about risk reward. I understand why the Fed and Congress did what they did at the time. I think it was the right decision on a risk reward basis. But when the facts change, you have to change. And the facts have changed dramatically since then. And yes, I don't think, I can't find any period in history or monetary and fiscal policy were this out of step with the economic circumstances, not one. Stan, you talk about how quickly the job market has come back. Uh, and you pointed out uh, retail sales, a lot of other things that are almost pre-pandemic levels. And in normal situations, you might think that the Fed would be talking about an interest rate hike right now. And you point out it's 32 months. The, the other statistic that I saw you point out was, and I don't have it right here, but the amount of, of asset purchases that the fund has or that the Fed has orchestrated just in in a very brief period of time it eclipses what we did through the whole financial crisis for the seven, eight years after the financial crisis. What is that yeah, number? In, in six weeks last spring, um, we did more QE, more, more purchase of treasuries. Then we did the entire time, the nine-year period from 2009 to 2018. Frankly, Joe, I don't have a problem with that. We were in a black hole. No one knew where we were headed. What I have a problem with is the Fed is expected to do $2.5 trillion of QE after, after vaccine confirmation and after retail sales um, reach trend and were above trend. So... The, the, the black hole didn't occur. That's wonderful. We're all happy. But we're still acting like we're in a black hole. And in fact, uh, the economy accelerating. Could your producers bring up the chart of retail sales? Is that yeah, possible? We, yep. I think we, yeah, we, we've got them already uh, that we can bring up there. It, That's uh, the third there, chart. There it is. I think it's up now. U.S. nominal retail sales. Okay, so if you look at this, this is a chart of retail sales the last 20 years. And as you can see, they grow about 3% a year. And after the last, the great financial crisis, it took about six years to get back to trend. If you look at the current recession, it's like nothing we've ever seen. A sharper decline, but then within six months, you were back to, to trend level. 
and you see check one, that's the first stimulus package. That's the one I have no problem with. I think it was the right risk reward, which was right at the bottom. But look at check two and check three when they're coming. Not only are we back to trend, we're now 15% above trend. To put that in perspective, retail sales grow at about 3% a year. So we are five years worth of demand above trends. There's some pull forward here away from travel, but it's not 15%. So when you look at this chart, and then you look at the Fed policy and all the stimulus and them talking about the hole we're in, I just think it's totally inappropriate. Let's talk about the dollar. And 85% of the transactions are still done in the dollar. You pointed out in a recent speech that you think we've crossed the Rubicon. Are you comfortable saying what you said there, that for the first time in your career, you think we lose reserve status at some point? I'm comfortable with it. That's my central case. As you know, Joe, I can change my mind. But yeah, um, you said that to some extent, the Fed is enabling the fiscal transfers. It's not to some extent. They couldn't be doing this without the Fed. The Fed is monetizing their activity. I mentioned all the QE after vaccine confirmation and retail sales. We've had $850 billion of direct transfers. $575 billion of them came after retail sales were above trend. $575 of the $850 billion. I'm old enough to remember the bond market vigilantes. I used to be one of them. Without the Fed buying, I don't know what the exact number is. I think it's 60% of all the debt issued. The, the bond markets would be totally rejecting this. So they are enabling this massive expansion in fiscal policy. And the problem is, if you end up getting inflation, and frankly, even if you don't, the debt is going to be so big. You remember I did my entitlement talks eight or nine years ago. That's all happened except for one thing, the interest rate level. So we're right now in the crux of when the demographic, when the baby boomers accelerate in terms of, of getting Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, that stuff. Right as we're doing that, we just put $6 trillion of new debt on. Again, all enabled by the Fed. These guys could not be doing it. Bond rates would go to a prohibitive level. So my, my issue here is in the future, um, as we go forward, if you look at, do you have chart five up there? Let's get it. I think we can do it. Uh, which one? Uh, it's federal spending, Social Security, major health care programs, federal spending is a percent of GDP. This, this is, is the CBO. This is not me. Okay. And they're saying if 10 years go to 4.9%, which is their normalized projection, the interest expense alone will be close to 30% of GDP every year. That's basically what we just spent on the COVID emergency in the last year. There is no way we can afford to have 30% of all government outlays be, be toward interest expense. So what will happen is the Fed will have to monetize that. When they monetize it, um, I believe it'll have horrible implications for the dollar. And that's why I said in that speech, Yes, that I think it's more likely than not within 15 years we lose reserve currency status. Can we go to um, the chart on the dollar specifically? Because I think this is really important. Last spring, 
in the midst of an equity market meltdown, and I've been trading for 40 years and I've never seen anything like this, right in the middle of an equity market meltdown, the bond market went down 18 points one day. And everybody thought it was macro traders like me and others that were rejecting the, the implications of the CARES Act. The Fed did a deep dive and by hindsight, foreigners sold a trillion dollars, a trillion, um, of treasuries overnight as we were proposing the CARES Act. They've continued to sell treasuries ever since then. Why is that important? Because for 20 years, treasuries have been the go-to asset of foreigners to hedge global portfolios with. In every case, whenever you had a problem in the equity market or in the world economy, they fled to treasuries and they fled to the dollar. Last spring, that was violated so since then, they've continued to sell treasuries. So what we've gone from is for 20 years, an average flow of 500 billion a year into treasuries from an outflow out of treasuries. Uh, so when you have a $700 billion current account deficit, our estimate for the year, you need capital to flow in to offset that. If you just erase 500 billion inflow and turn it into an outflow, you see the pressure will put on the dollar. A reasonable person might ask, well, if that's true, why did the dollar not go down from March to July? Very simple. Um, who was the biggest beneficiary of COVID? Obviously, the massive digital transformation companies, Google, Microsoft, not so massive, but Zoom, those kind of names. What country dominated in terms of those names? The United States of America. So the $500 billion outflow out of bonds was offset by a massive inflow from, from world central banks, from sovereign wealth funds into our equity market. Um, by July, they had become, that had become pretty much in the market. The relative prices had gone up and frankly, the vaccine profile was starting to look better. So that is when the dollar peaked as that offset started to diminish. And as you know, Joe, the vaccine tends to cause a rotation out of growth stocks into value stocks. Our big advantage over here are the growth stocks. So that's why I think the pressure on the dollar is going to continue. Stanley Drunken Miller spilling the beans on everything, right? He's telling the American public exactly the same things that we know. The Fed is buying treasuries. Everyone around the world is selling treasuries. It's getting propped up, right? It's all a charade. What happens now? If you look at the news that's getting reported today, a lot of things that are very interesting are happening. Facebook have partnered with Silvergate Bank to issue its U.S. dollar stablecoin. 
Silvergate Bank is one of the biggest banks in the crypto and Bitcoin space. That's interesting. So they pulled out of Sweden and now all of a sudden they're in business with FinCEN. Hmm. So their stablecoin is on board to get released here finally at the end of this year. Another thing you have is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. That's interesting. One of the federal banking regulators in the U.S. are going to provide deposit insurance to federally regulated institutions and is taking a look at how banks are exploring digital currencies. Well, that's funny. Now they're on board with digital currencies. I wonder what changed their mind. Oh, yeah. It was probably last week when the Fed said, hey, we're going to give all these fintech companies direct access to us. Hmm. That's funny. Oh, what do you know? MoneyGram is, is going to allow Bitcoin buying and selling across its retail network. Huh. That's interesting. Over 20,000 stores across 32 states by Q3 of this year. Lo and behold, what's going on here? Well, the World Economic Forum, the same people who brought you the coronavirus. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Kind of. If you look here, they just released their latest report because we know how great they are doing research. <laughs> they just released their latest report. It's called Digital Assets and the Distributed Ledger Technology and the Future of Capital Markets. Who are they partnered with these days, Car? Hmm, that's interesting. It looks like Bax there. Huh, Fenris there. Oh, wow, Citibank, BBVA, BlackRock, JP Morgan. Huh, is that consensus? Oh, the same consensus that is uh, pioneering Ethereum? Yep, sure is. Fidelity? Oh, wow, Paxos? Oh, is that the same Paxos? Yep, Paxos from, from the Bitcoin crypto industry. Huh, that's hilarious. I wonder why they are there, Car. Well, if you didn't know, Ethereum is going to extend the lifespan of the U.S. dollar. It's literally playing out exactly like I've been saying for the past year. No one's paying attention except y'all. And this is exactly what's happening. Uh, uh, it's crazy. It's, it's insane. And they, they even have it here, the World Economic Forum. DLT is beginning to reshape capital markets, but the future is uncertain. <laughs> this is nuts. And it's happening exactly like we've been saying, right? Ethereum is going to be the base layer for this fiat printing machine, right? And we've just been covering the Ethereum Summit here the past two days. It was, it was long, treacherous, and almost a nightmare <laughs> how bad the audio was, right? But we know how centralized it is now with, with uh, how they're just going to roll in <laughs> ETH1. Crazy. So... They're going to be able to manipulate anything they want on Ethereum, especially if they're especially if they're rolling everything on there. And it looks, according to the World Economic Forum, who's making all the rules these days, hey, it's the truth. I'm just saying, all I'm doing is reporting the truth here. Um, but yeah, now they're saying, hey, DLT is a real thing, digital assets. The future of capital markets is happening on Ethereum. And it's crazy. Consensus is there. Wow. Joe Lubin. 
Man, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Okay, so where do we go from here? Well, I want to talk about the monetary system because I think there's something to be said about it. We know that the Fed is on fire, but do we know how the Federal Reserve works? Have we actually talked about it? I think we've talked about it once or twice before, but actually, but have we actually explained what's wrong with it? There's one person who I've recently discovered who has like just kind of blown me away here recently. His name is John Titus. When he made this um, movie called Bankrupt, and it was about the 2008 crash. I want you to take a listen to his version of how the Fed works and why he is a Fed hawk and why he studies the Fed and why there shouldn't be a Fed to begin with. Take a listen. Well, is that a cause or is that an effect? I mean, the banks just didn't get criminal immunity overnight. They must have had some predicate power, you know, before they got immunity that, that gave them this leg up and this gives them this tremendous advantage. And I looked and looked and I researched and it comes down to the banks, for the most part, issue our money supply. And that issuing money is a sovereign function. It's right in the Constitution. It's in it's in Article One, Congressional Powers. It's really, you know, Congress and the Treasury should be issuing money. And every state, you know, like the quote you used at the beginning, you know, Aristotle said, money exists by by law, not by nature. And that's right. And so money is really, a, it's a legal institution, uh, first and foremost. And so if you look in the US, there are three entities that issue money. Uh, one is the US Treasury, and that's the proper one, but it only issues coins. Um, the other issuer, the second biggest issuer, is the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve. Um, it's it's a, the Federal Reserve. People think of it as a monolithic entity. It's really twelve regional banks, and they're all private. The biggest one of which is the New York Fed, and the regional federal Federal Reserve banks are private. They issue two forms of money. They issue Federal Reserve notes, which is cash, and they issue what's called reserves, which is digital, but they don't issue either one um, without strings attached. They're, they're, there's debt attached to that. In other words, the U.S. as an entity, the U.S. government has to borrow, say, let's say a billion dollars 
and present the billion dollar bond, the IOU, to the Federal Reserve in exchange for, say, a billion dollars in Federal Reserve notes. So even though you look at a Federal Reserve, you look at a $20 bill and say, well, that's there's no debt attached to that. Well, there is. It's just you're not seeing it because the note itself is the liability side of the debt, whereas the bond that you don't see, that's the asset side of the debt. But then that's the, the Federal Reserve is the second issuer of money in the U.S. The third and largest, far and away the largest issuer of money in the U.S. is commercial banks, and they issue bank money. So you've got money in the bank. I've got money in the bank. All of that money is digital, and all of it is sourced in loans. And you might say, well, you know, I didn't borrow my money in the bank. I've got $1,000 in the bank. I didn't borrow that money. And that may be well be true, but it's sourced it, it originated from a loan somewhere in the lo- along the line. And the problem with that system where you have you know, 99.99% of your money, basically everything but coins is debt. Our money system is debt-based. Um, the problem with that is that the banks can call in those loans and they have the power to shrink the money supply at will. And there's periods of history, U.S. history, where the banks do exactly that. They shrink the money supply. They tighten up on it. It caused the Great Depression of 1929, caused the Great Depression of 1920, caused the Panic of 1907. You can trace them all back. And that's exactly what happened is the money supply shrinks. In 1929, the money supply shrank by 30% to 1933. And that's what a depression is. No one has any money. And you, that's why you don't want to leave money creation in the hands of your private banks, because they're going to use that to their advantage. And it's, it's like I say, it's a sovereign power. The power of creating money properly belongs to we, the people, not to private banks, but such is our system. And it's given the, the banks the power to basically, if you look at 2008 and the bailouts, how did that happen? It's the banks have the power to issue money and they can just put a gun to their head and say, go ahead, don't bail us out, see what happens. Because if you look at the four largest banks at that time, at that time, it's J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America. Those four banks held something like you know forty percent of the money supply. Well, the Great Depression, as I just told you, was a contraction of thirty percent. So just with four banks, you had the ability to contract the money supply to a greater degree than you did in the nineteen twenty nine depression, and that took nine thousand banks failing to contract the money supply. And that is that that's why the banks, that's really what makes them the sovereign power. So if you look through history, you'll see an argument, not really an argument, but a, a seesaw of which which power is greater, which sovereign power is greater. Do you want guns or do you want money? The Federal Reserve was right before World War One. And there's pretty good evidence that you know that, that was one of the principal reasons to do that. You know, you really needed this, you you need you needed a centralized monetary power to prosecute a war um, and to control an economy. And the way to control economies through a central bank. And it was the same thing with England. You know, the Bank of England was started in 1694. And, and right away, these things start to happen. You have, you know, the, the South Sea bubble happens right afterwards. You know, England goes on a tear with wars um, because you need giant piles of debt to sustain this monetary system, increasingly huge piles of debt to sustain the monetary system. And wars are a great way to do that. 
Um, back to the political thing, you know, it's amazing. If you look at left-right top politics just in the U.S., you know, you'll 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 rarely, oh, hardly ever find anybody who doesn't support the the private issuance of money. In other words, the, you, people always come back around to, yeah, we do need a debt-based monetary system, and it needs to be privately controlled. I mean, what political party stands behind? Well, no, we should have the treasury issue the money, and there should be no debt attached to it. There's not a political party in the landscape anywhere that's for that, and that's what that's what we need. You know, we need a we need a system that's not debt based in a monetary system where you can't have where you don't have private bankers who can contract the money supply overnight or expand it overnight and create inflation. So it is. You're right. It's a it's a tremendous means of social control because really you can create money out of thin air and you can create as much as you want. Um, and so if you th- sort of localize an example, you know, you work, you see somebody working their whole lives to build a business. You know, let's say it's, a, you know, a poster business, something pretty simple, you know, a main street business and it grows and it gets bigger. You know, they spend their whole lives doing this. Maybe the business gets up to be worth $10 million. You know, somebody comes along, somebody who's got Wall Street connections or commercial bank connection, they see that business. You know, they can buy you out because all they can just, you know, they can they can borrow as much money as they need. You know, $10 million is nothing to them. They can borrow $100 million because they can create $100 million out of thin air just with some guy's promissory note. And they can go in and buy that business out or they can install competitors there. I mean, it's a tremendous means of social control. And it is absolutely, the thing that gets me probably more than anything else is it's so contrary to the rule of law. You know, you can you have two choices of governance. You can either have law at the top, or you can have basically, you know, a committee, a, you know, a man at the top, like a mob boss. Those are your two choices. It's a Jeffersonian expression. You know, it's you can be a nation of laws, or you can be a nation of men. And so, if you have a nation of law, you know, laws at the top, and nobody has any special privileges. You know, nobody is above the law's reach, and no one's beneath its protection. And that's the rule of law. And when you have a monetary system where there's a tiny group of people that can create money out of thin air and lend it out at interest on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's everybody else, you just set up a system of kings. And that's our system. It's a system of commercial banks. That's what makes them really the only true sovereign power in the U.S. Everything else is window dressing. The, the hardest thing about understanding the money system it's not. It's really not learning it. It's unlearning decades of misinformation that have been salted into your brain. And so the hardest thing is to get people on board with the notion that the money comes from debt. Because everybody has this idea. You go to the bank to get a $1,000 loan, mm-hmm. and the bank just reaches behind it, goes into a vault, and pulls out you know $1,000 worth of gold coins or $1,000 or whatever. Like that's not that's not how it works. There was a there was a British monetary historian named Lloyd Mintz back in the 19th century, and he looked at it. He looked at the monetary system, studying it, and this reserved Englishman says, "This is this is the work of the devil. It's it's that nefarious and that complex. It is a very difficult thing to wrap your hands around. Now, once you see it, then you're like, holy cow! I can't believe this. This is the problems are all right here." But to get other people up to speed, that's 
let's just take a thousand dollar loan. I'll, I'll I'll just use a small example and sort of build out from that. You go to a bank and you get a loan for a thousand dollars. So the way the way that works is the bank uh, it doesn't go to a vault and get that money. It it just enters a one thousand dollar computer entry basically in a spreadsheet and just types a thousand dollars. That's what that's it and deposits that in your account. You can now draw on that. And that's the liability side of the bank. The asset side of that loan is you signed a note in all likelihood, a promissory note to pay that money back, to pay the $1,000 back and to pay it back with interest. And I'm going to use an unrealistic example a little bit and just say it's 10% interest so it's easy to compute. And so at the end of the year, um, you owe $1,100. Now, you know from the outset, you know that where the $1,000 of principal is because you had that. You know, you had that in your account at one time. You know that the principal exists somewhere. It may be in someone else's hands, but the principal is out there somewhere. The problem is the $100 of interest does not exist. And so you either, you have one of two choices at the end of the year. You can either get the principal from somebody else uh, get your hundred get the hundred dollars interest from somebody else and the saw into their principal and create an even bigger problem for them or you can you can re-up that loan you meaning you can sign another loan agreement you know maybe for eleven hundred dollars or whatever and so this process continues and so there's always a shortage of money and so you set up a system of musical chairs and the problem with this system is that it creates artificial shortages it creates artificial scarcity and it creates artificial competition that doesn't need to be there because you know we we basically don't have enough money because there isn't enough money to pay for everything we as a society can't consume just to give you one example we can't consume 100% of our own output and so as a res as a result of that you have now you now have to have advertising to position products because if you just leave things as they are and banks are raking out the interest, you know, there's going to be a lot of products that don't get off the shelves. And so right away you have advertising and right away you have waste just off the bat. And so you have this system of you need more, 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 more. And so you need bigger and bigger, and bigger debts. And so you have, you tend to have these enterprises that are very good at generating large piles of debt, for example, War is a great way to generate huge piles of debt. And if you look back through history, what you will find is that almost immediately upon the creation of a central bank, you will find wars. You know, the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, and the U.S. is almost immediately, I mean, it just takes this short, this few, a few short years, is in the World War I. And so the, the, the consequence of having a debt-based monetary system, the consequences are they're almost unfathomable in their reach. They're everywhere. And I think it helps to understand that, that a lot of times things that it looks like a political issue, it really isn't left versus right. The real fundamental issue is always it's we the people versus the money creators.
Over the last year, the Federal Reserve has continued to accumulate mortgage-backed securities. It now holds $2.25 trillion worth of mortgage debt. In the fourth quarter of 2020, there existed 16.78 million mortgages in the U.S. We should not be surprised that the price of many commodities have been rising over the last year, especially the price of inputs for construction of new homes. As you know, the price of lumber and wood products have more than doubled since April 2020. Many other commodities are following this upward trend. Reflecting this, the producer price index for all commodities has increased by more than 10% over the last year. As we should expect, rising prices of goods used in the early stages of production processes are picking up in the inflationary effects of expansion first. We have counterfeiting, sometimes called quantitative easing, but counterfeiting by any other name. The artificial printing of money, which if any ordinary person did, they'd go to prison for a very long time. And yet governments and central banks do it all the time. Many investors have let their guard down with regard to inflation. The popular belief is that the Fed has inflation under control. The Ben Bernanke framework that persists to this day has succeeded in preventing expansion of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet from generating inflation. For the first time since the framework's implementation, however, the Federal Reserve policy is not erring on the side of caution. Nope. Monetary policy is intentionally supporting fiscal policy and supporting levels of indebtedness from the federal government that are unprecedented. The result has been an explosion of M2 that increases the risk of inflation. This fiscal expansion has also aggravated confidence in the soundness of U.S. fiscal policy and, consequently, in the U.S. dollar. It is testing investor willingness to shrug off persistently elevated levels of indebtedness. There is a fair chance that policymakers will succeed, but for the possibility of success, they risk a monetary fiscal crisis. John as he explains how all this is going to play out with the BIS, with DLT, with this whole kind of green movement, with the World Economic Forum, with this digital currency movement, with digital assets, and of course with the Federal Reserve. Here's the deal. Open your eyes. Your life is a lie. Don't say a word. I'll tell you why. You're living a lie. Your life is a lie. Tonight, you have a lie, wondering why, barely alive, count your friends on 
That's Augustin Carson's uh, playing good cop there. He's, he's going to be bad cop in a minute. That's good cop. What he said is factually correct. Um, it's, he wants to say it's a sovereign decision because he wants everybody to know, well, you know, the U.S. can decide whether or not it wants to have a central bank digital currency and England can make its own decision and so on and so forth. And when he says it's the third type of liability, that too is accurate. I, at the outset, I was saying, you know, the, at the, at the federal in the Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve issues cash. That's one type of liability. Federal Reserve notes, paper. And the second type of liability issues is reserves. When Carson says it's the third type of liability, what he means is that everybody, let's say in the U.S., for example, would have a, a digital wallet. And the, the money supplier of that wallet would be the Federal Reserve. And, and so that's there's 330 million of us. Let's say every wallet has you know $1,000 in it, so that's $330 billion. That would be the liability to the Fed, $330 billion in our example. And the asset would be, um, it would be a $330 billion bond. And that's what he means when he says it's the third type of liability. He doesn't walk through it that much. But that's that's easy. That's sort of like just the ABCs of central bank digital currency. That's all he's saying there. But there's two other clips that should you should pay very close attention to these next two clips. Now, in order our analysis on CBDC, in particular for the use of general to the general use, uh, we tend to establish the equivalence with cash, uh, and there is a huge difference there. Uh, for example, in cash, uh, we don't know, for example, who is using a $100 bill today. We don't know who is using a 1,000 peso bill today. Uh, a key difference in, with the CBDC is that central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that expression of central bank liability. And also, we will have the technology to enforce that. Okay. Now the gloves are coming off. Okay. So he heard, you heard what he just said. The problem with the $100 bill is we don't know who's got the $100 bill, and we don't know what they're spending it on. So the great thing about central bank digital currencies is we'll, we'll know exactly where it is. We'll, be, we'll know exactly what the, it's being used on. We'll have rules over what you can spend your money on, and we'll have the technology to enforce it. And Carson's is excited about this. He's like, this is a good thing. It's like, this sounds like a nightmare to me. But there's another clip. 
if he goes on a little bit more. Therefore, I think this this lends itself to design carefully CBDC in such a way that they will not be a vehicle for fragmentation, for uh, financial instability, uh, and and for spillovers. Therefore, I I, I don't think that by by themselves CBDC is a threat to the international uh, monetary system. Uh, for example, in the issue of currency substitution, if, uh, if, if uh, an advanced economy issues a CBDC and somebody in a third country wants to, to use it, it requires, it will require the consent of the central bank of the residence of that person. Uh, therefore, the, the, the degree of control will be fa- far bigger. Now, this, I think it's, a, it's good news because I think that it really, it really provides the ground for us to think on how can we use CBDC to, to really obtain these higher objectives of facilitating payments internationally. How are we going to, to make them to reduce costs, to, to, to enhance inclusion? Uh, how are we going to, to make this route uh, run smoothly? There you go. Um, what he's saying there, sort of roundabout way, he says, we, we can, we, in the previous clip, he said, well, we have the technology to enforce the rules about how this can be used, how your money can be used, how you are allowed to use your money. And there he gives you a little bit of an idea of what he's talking about. He's saying we, we can decide whether the transaction is going to go through, basically, based on higher objectives. And it's like, well, that's like inclusion was the example he used. So it's like, well, you that sounds like you're just going to make up goals on the fly and decide willy-nilly, you know, what, what what we can use money on and what we can't use money on, right? There's no there's no standard. The standard is whatever we say it is right now, right? So if you think back to the pandemic, you know, early on, sort of in the pandemic, you had Fauci comes on 60 Minutes and says, nobody should be wearing masks, nothing to worry about. And within a few weeks, he's like, everybody should be wearing masks. So it's like, well, it's it's A one day, and it's not A, it's the negation of A the next day. Just imagine that now with money. You know, one day you can spend money on flowers, and the next day you can't because of reasons X, Y, and Z. It's just It's a system of total monetary control by private bankers. That's what he just said there. But you need you need to watch these guys. They're rolling ahead with this no matter what. Now, that said, you know, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, he, he knows that there are some issues with central bank digital currency in the US. And, and you could see that from that conference. What what the clips we just watched were from October of this year, two months ago. And there was sort of a roundtable discussion. And Jerome Powell was part of that discussion. It was hosted by the IMF. And it had there. There was cross-border payments was in the title. You can find it pretty quickly. But Powell, the things Powell was saying, reflected the fact that he understands it's a it's a major legal leap forward or backward. It's a major legal change for the U.S. to implement a central bank digital currency. So what I'm saying in a roundabout way is this battle is not yet. It's early on. And its outcome is not foreordained. So this is something, if you want to raise hell about an issue, this would be a going to raise hell at. 
because it's going to end up with you're going to have no say over your own money. And at first you're going to have you're going to have no say at the national level. And then it's going to get worse because ultimately it's going to go to a single um, reserve currency issued probably by the Bank for International Settlements. And they will call all the shots and you'll have no representation through Congress at all. We'll be back to pre-1776, just like that. But they have tremendous power and it it doesn't belong in their hands. It belongs belongs in the hands of the people. And until we get that back, you know, we're, we're in a bad way. going to lose the world reserve currency status you see that headline right and then you know i just go some just start digging right because that's what i do i start digging try to start understanding like you know what's going on there you know you start running into people like john here and, and you hear these things that he's talking about, right? And then you start fact-checking what he's saying because, you know, I want to make sure what he's saying is the truth, right? I, I've heard of the BIS, but I've never actually, like, actually looked into them, you know, to be honest with y'all. So what do I do? I, I start looking into them. Bank for International Settlements. Yeah. Turns out, yeah, <laughs> he's exactly right. They're actually having a conference here on, on June 4th. Uh, well, actually, June 2nd through the 4th. And it's an invite-only conference. And so if you look at the people attending, it's Augustine Carstens, who, who he was talking about, Mark Carney. Um, you have Al Gore. Jerome Powell, Christine Lagarde. You also have Zhao Zi. He's the president of, uh, of China Society for Finance and Banking. He's the same guy that we saw at Davos. You have the governor of the Bank of China. You have the, you have the governor of the Bank of Italy. Uh, you have the managing director of the IMF. You have all these heavyweights there, right? At this invite-only conference. 
or hear what they're about to, to talk or discuss or policies they're going to create or initiatives they're going to enact. He's exactly right. They're moving forward with this. I don't know at this point if all of this was pre-planned from the get. It makes me wonder, was all this pre-planned from the get-go? Did they just kind of stumble along and they forged this plan? I, I, clear, I clearly see the path now. We'll see how that plays out, but there's there's going to be something there. Now, whether America decides to opt in on that or I just hope there's some patriots out there that say, fuck that. <laughs> we want Bitcoin. Right. I hope there's some patriots still out there. You have to believe there are. Not all of them can be. Fiat maximalists like Jerome Powell. I do want to leave you with somebody who sees a uh, greener side of things. His name is Max Kaiser. Um, and he sees things a little bit more greener. Take a listen. taking down the subprime market by some Wall Street Sharpies who made billions doing so. Michael Saylor is engaging in the big long. He's engaging in a speculative attack where he can borrow at three quarters of 1%, which is extraordinarily cheap historically. And he's buying Bitcoin effectively to attack the Fed and attack the U.S. dollar in the same way that George Soros did in 1992. They, they attacked the British pound and they broke the Bank of England. They forced Britain out of the exchange rate mechanism. And Soros made a billion dollars in a week. It seems to me that Michael Saylor is launching this speculative attack against the U.S. dollar by borrowing at these artificially low rates yep. and loading up on Bitcoin. And that's going to, and the dollar is getting weak. I saw it's weak again today. It's it's looking terrible. You know, if the dollar keeps getting weaker, that means we we got a real problem on our hands in America because inflation is going to start really printing at numbers that nobody's seen in 20, 30 years. 
and uh, the people making money on Bitcoin as it gallops through 100,000 and beyond, they're going to be like, well, we told you so. But guess what? The keys are unconfiscatable. So go fuck yourself. Right. And uh, <laughs> right. It, right. Is that is that what we're you know, we're Wall Street veterans. I mean, that I'm when Paul mm-hmm. Tudor Jones said it's the fastest horse in the race and it's good for humanity. That's like yeah. throwing red meat to a cage full of lions. I, I have to say, I, yeah. see, I, I see it differently, Max. And um, <clears throat> number one, I think that I think that people conflate a weaker dollar in currency terms as opposed to a weaker dollar in buying power terms. And I think this happens all the time. And I think a lot of people do it. And I think it's a mistake to do that. Um, the weakness in the dollar is reflected in both inflation as well as in currency terms. And it's not only the currency terms that matter. In fact, I would argue that the weakness in the dollar is more in inflation terms. And what we've seen in the last 40 years has been asset inflation. So what happens is the dollar weakness is reflected in an S&P that goes up compounded annually at some very high rate, and NASDAQ, which does similarly. That's the real weakness in the dollar. That's the big, broader weakness in the dollar and fiat currencies generally. So I don't quite agree with the speculative attack argument. Right. No, I get it. We mm-hmm. got uh, asset inflation and the Fed's claiming they're fighting deflation, even though if you included something like something that Michael Saylor points out, he said that 20 years ago, you could buy a million dollars in bonds and get a 5% coupon and have 50000 a year in income. And now you need uh, 10 to 20 times that purchase in bonds. And that's genuine inflation in his terms, right? Uh, but we have asset price inflation for sure. But the average person in America, because everything's been outsourced to China and because our energy is basically coming in from countries that we have colonized in the Middle East, you know, the average American doesn't really have a, a price to sticker shock when they go shop for food or they buy their gasoline. So now uh, right. with the weakness in the dollar that we're seeing and the inability to control that weakness in the dollar because the Fed is completely tapped out and Michael Taylor has provided a vector out of this mess, unlike gold. Gold is not the vector out because it's totally controlled. And people start saying, wait a minute, my, my CPI just doubled in the last <laughs> months and you know my dollar can't buy 25 cents worth of groceries that i got in 2018 right i mean that's real cpi inflation can't be it's the genie's out of the bottle and there's no way to bring it back in i mean that's that's what i think is going to catch people's attention and that's also going to start some panic buying into bitcoin as the fastest source in the race you know gold and you know, we'll get some of the ancillary benefit of that, but it won't be like Bitcoin, which is set to, you know, print mul- many multiples of the current price. When it comes to currency collapses, from what I know of it, and I'm no expert in it, although I do remember, I forget where I was. I was traveling somewhere when that happened. can't remember where it was. It was, in, I think, 1992. Um, usually it's because locals are fleeing their currency. But I don't think this is just about a currency collapse. I think that's really wrong. I think that you're actually going to watch Bitcoin go up a lot in value and people will simply adopt the new system. I think that people have buying urgency <clears throat> because the price goes up. And I don't yeah, but think- it goes up against what? 
it goes up against the dollar by right. 20, the by dollar 20. Is already in a hyperinflationary collapse against Bitcoin right now. Absolutely. It's just not hit the mainstream media yet. Absolutely. Once you've got a hundred thousand dollar Bitcoin and people also are losing, they can't afford food anymore. That's going to be highly problematic as the politics of that in America yeah. in 2021. And I don't think you're going to have a situation where people can't afford food. I think what you're going to see is I think you're going to see Bitcoin going up in value. Yeah, I, I like to ask this question. See, I, I, I actually don't like this take. I don't like this framing because I don't really agree with it. And I think it brings about more fear than it brings about a positive nature and discussion of Bitcoin. So I'm not a fan of this. I'm not a fan of the speculative well, attack argument. A quick side note, people already can't afford food. You got 150 well, American added below the poverty line and the food stamp programs and the, and the other programs. If you pull the plug on those, You'd have that homeless crisis go up by dramatically anyway, as it is people living in their cars to work at Walmart for the wages that don't support a lifestyle. So the poverty is an incredible problem in America I agree. right now. And any kind of dy dynamic change to the purchasing power of the dollar will exacerbate that to extraordinary levels. Yep. I don't think I, I'm seeing it that way, too. Go ahead. I don't think that's what we're going to see, though. I don't think I don't I don't think it plays out quite like that. Well, the only way to not play it out like that is to print more money, right? We know that 30% of all the money ever been printed in America has been done so in the last two two years or three years. You know, don't quote me on the exact numbers there, but there it's an extraordinary up ramp. You see the M1 money supply in the last six months, like that hockey stick just skyrocketing to the moon. Uh, who's the biggest buyer of all this debt? It's America itself. It's the Federal Reserve Bank. So you've got this fiat currency crisis heading all over the world. The dollar is backed, according to Paul Krugman at The New York Times, by men in guns, men with guns. Right. So and of course, if that's backing the dollar, the military industrial complex, which spends two hundred and fifty million dollars a day on gas alone just to keep the tanks fueled up. That's what America pays on their daily gas bill. Right. So now gas is uh, gas is, uh, you know, just goes up three or four X. Right. And now the military, like every empire, they're like, we can't afford the freaking gas, man. The military's toast. You know, and America can't support the dollar anymore. China, Russia, Iran, all these countries are already doing side deals and bilateral deals and getting out of the dollar as fast as they can and buying Bitcoin. The dollar collapses. You know, there's no way you can sugarcoat a dollar collapse. There's no rosy ending to that story. It's loss of purchasing power is profound. And the, the poverty that's already extremely uh, pervasive in America, it goes through the roof and you already have social unrest. So why not pour some gasoline on all those street protests? Well, you know, why, why don't we get a million people on the street uh, you know, torching cars? You know, like this is 2021 coming soon to a not to a theater near you. <laughs> I, I I think I think you're right. Ultimately, I'm not sure if it's a 2021 event. Um, I do think that they probably continue to play the same games with spending and and uh, controlling the yield curve, which is effectively money printing. Um, so I, I I do agree with that. I don't like the framing of it, and I don't know exactly. I, I think you watch a Bitcoin system grow dramatically and it becomes like a giant craft which enables people to enter a new system. Um, 
it doesn't have to be a meltdown quite described like that. If people, right, look, I, I'm presenting a Van Gogh. I don't, you know, you can put it in any frame you want. It doesn't change the quality of the painting, right? The all the all the essences, all the colors, all the composition, all the the, the brush strokes. I've been building now since Clinton, since Reagan, since, and then Clinton, who got rid of Glass Steagall. Who they brought in the Commodity uh, Futures Modernization Act, which which was totally undermined the U.S. economy and gave Wall Street the keys to the castle. They printed trillions of dollars. They bailed out all the banks. They bailed out long-term capital management. They engaged in moral hazard to the point where. Uh, hazard, moral hazard became the de facto business model of America. Uh, Jamie Dimon keeps 90 cents of every dollar he steals. Uh, and, and, and that's the business model fraud. Now that's unsustainable. And the, the only way we got a good scenario on the other end of this is that you got to let the system collapse. That's unfortunately what's got to happen. Sometimes you got to let the system collapse. The sooner America utterly collapses and GDP collapses by 80%, the sooner we can rebuild this shit and have a, a country worth living in. Right now, it's not worth living in this country. It's complete disaster area. We need the whole thing to, sh to completely collapse. And then the Constitution as an idea, the Bill of Rights as an idea, that will survive because they can, can't kill an idea. We build from scratch and Bitcoin becomes the reserve currency. That's definitely going to happen, but it's going to be a hell of a lot higher than it is here. If you want to be one of the architects of new America, buy Bitcoin now, become individually sovereign and be the Ben Franklin of the 21st century. Or you can sit around with their dick in your hands and be fucking poor and eating dirt. Those are the two alternatives in 2021. Max. Well, then look, if, I, if hold on one second, Tina. Hold, hold uh, on one second, Tina. So this this is I'm leaning on uh, toward the toward the max side of the equation on this one. Now, I don't know, like about the rights and the streets and the, you know, the politics of fear. But we also have to be real at the same time, because I don't think. I don't think that we can necessarily put this thing back in the bottle at this point, right? So like Max was saying on the Swanland that you guys were at like a couple weeks ago, Michael Saylor's pulled the pin out at this point and just like thrown the grenade into the boardroom of, of the, you know, the, um, the Federal Reserve Bank, right? So what, how do you stop it at this point? Once the play shows that it's doing well, I mean, we had a PTJ was on May, you know, it was in May, May of this year. Uh, MicroStrategy first announced this thing in August of this year. Since then, we're just seeing Cascade, you know, and, and all of this stuff happening behind the scenes. We're just going to see over the weeks and months of the coming year. And then it's it's not just equity and, and cash that they're putting into Bitcoin. It's now, you know, low interest debt that the other side apparently just doesn't get yet. So everyone who understands what's happening gets to leverage up on everyone who doesn't understand what's happening. That's just like this massive cascade. And that's why we call it hyper Bitcoinization. It's, it's, it's like goes gradually long. then absolutely suddenly. Well, right? okay. so so like, how does long. that not happen? How do we, go, how do we go to 2020? Yeah, so, okay. Pro Bitcoin bet using interest rates that are artificially low because they've been bailing out the banks for 20 years and destroying the economy as a result. Michael Saylor stood up and said, I could have bought my back my own stock with these cheap rates and I could have had stock options and I could have made billions of dollars that way. But I think actually inflation is a real problem. So instead, I'm going to attack the Fed. By uh, by by doing a speculative attack by borrowing at these incredibly cheap rates and going long Bitcoin. And I think that is the pin being pulled on the grenade. And I think a lot of very wealthy people are going to do the exact same thing and follow in Michael Saylor's footsteps. And that means you there's a there's a there's a hundred trillion dollars sitting in investable accounts around the world. Bitcoin market cap is under three hundred billion. 
uh, if only 5% of that money goes into Bitcoin, you know, do the math, it goes a lot higher from here. And it takes a whole new generation with it because the millennials and the Gen Z are into Bitcoin. You know, the baby boomers, they're going to get completely rolled over. You know, uh, and they right they should rightfully get rolled over because they're the ones who gave the baby the millennials all the student debt. The, they made housing unaffordable and they totally stole everything from uh, the economy. And now they're going to get their comeuppance, come up, come and they deserve it. see the FUD today, the first thing I think is, what happened this week? Why is this happening? Yeah, there's 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 a lot of things going on, you know. Um, you know, I, I don't like to, you know, insinuate things, but, you know, it's, it's pretty peculiar. You know, somebody like Stanley Druckenmiller comes out and says, you know, the Federal Reserve is going to lose its... Uh, the dollar is going to lose a reserve currency status in the world because of the Federal Reserve and Bitcoin goes down, right? Coincidentally, kind of weird how that happens, right? This prominent billionaire investor says something like this and uh, people are left wondering, well, where do I put my money? <laughs> where do I put my money? Do I put it in gold? Do I put it in, in lumber? The smartest people in the room are putting it in Bitcoin, Right. That's where the smartest people in the room are putting in it. Everybody knows at this point it's a store of value. It's the people that are not in the know that don't know this. So people can FUD all they want about climate change and how Bitcoin is killing climate change. You even have the ECB coming out that Bitcoin threatens global sustainability efforts. Everybody's doing everything they can to FUD on Bitcoin because they know it's so scarce and they want it cheaper. So you're going to have everybody attacking it because they want it at a lower price. They want it to come down. They want it to come down as much as they can so they can buy it at, at a barrel bottom price because they want it cheaper. They want to push the price down. Right? They don't want people to buy it. They don't want retail investors like yourself to buy it. They want you to drop your bags because they know where this is going. I'm serious. This is how strategic they are. But you're too smart.
you know, after reading all this information today and yesterday, you're going to start seeing a big movement happen here in the short term, I would say by the end of the year. If you thought the Bitcoin tribe and the Ethereum tribe were bad, it's about to get worse. Once the news spreads that Ethereum is going to extend the lifespan for fiat currency and that consensus is in bed with the BIS, <laughs> oh man, it's, uh, it's going to get really fascinating. I was kind of shocked to see it, but at the same time, it, it wasn't surprising. Right, we've um, been kind of knowing that Ethereum was going to be the base layer for all this stuff, and of course they would get with consensus. They're the leader in developing all these tools, but at the same time, it's it's kind of hard to watch. I guess I kind of always thought it was going to be XRP, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess it makes me root for Bitcoin more. You know, at the end of the day. Yeah. Bye, Bitcoin. Save the world. Seriously.